0: We've thought about the the wonderful planet that God prepared for mankind. And uh, when we look around, we see it teeming with an amazing variety of life. Plants, fish, birds, animals, insects. And of course, a great deal of life that we can't see. Bacteria, viruses, coronavirus. but it's all ultimately the handiwork of the creator. And again, uh, the TV nature programs have brought so much of this to our attention that we would simply never have seen in our own lives. Um, in that wonderful psalm of praise that we just read, we, the, the psalmist speaks of the heavenly bodies that we've been thinking of They praise him by their existence and their uh, obedience to his laws. Uh, And then it comes down to the earth and to the material things on the earth, the elements, fire and hail, verse 8, snow and vapours, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills. And then it comes to living things, fruitful trees and all cedars beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, and ultimately to mankind himself, kings of the earth and all people, princes and judges of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. And right at the end of the psalm, this wonderful God of creation who is so high above the earth, it speaks of his dealings with his saints and of the children of Israel and uh, his special people, a people near unto him. If you look back at Psalm 147, uh, we quoted verse 4 in part 1. He telleth, or counts, it's the old English word to tell, Uh, As in a tally, he counts the number of the stars and calls them all by their names. But in verse eight, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow upon the mountains. Our children are not taught that in school either. It's God who makes the grass to grow in their biology lessons. The grass grows from seed it needs food it needs water light and all those things but nobody mentions that god causes it to grow and so god has made this wonderful planet i'll just um, show you one of those amazing pictures of the earth taken from space there are hundreds of them on internet if you go to this nasa site or any of those uh, and this is a, a picture that we will all recognize because it is focuses on the land which god's eyes are upon from the beginning of the year to the end of the year the apple of his eye as scripture says and god has given the earth to the children of men but this is a special place we can see the dead sea there let me get the uh laser pointer, here's the Dead Sea and, of course, Jerusalem will be here somewhere. Here's the coast leading up to that hook in the coast, which is where Haifa is. Up here we have Lebanon and Syria. Down here we have um, the Gulf of Aqaba and the Gulf of Suez at the head of the Red Sea. We've got uh, the Nile and the Nile Delta. And here we have the island of Cyprus. Really, I find these pictures quite amazing and uh, instructive. But this is just how beautiful our planet is. And we're seeing it, as it were, from God's point of view. Now, I mentioned just now what our children are taught in their science lessons, of course. science is if you on the definition the systematic study of the nature and behavior of the material universe and unfortunately it's come to um, be the rule that you can only describe the material universe in terms of natural things in terms of material Uh, there is no room for spirit spiritual things Um, for us, the science is, is a valid study because it studies God's creation. Uh, the medieval philosophers referred to nature as the book of nature, which stu- stood alongside the book of the word, the, the word of God, in describing God's works. And it's, it's interesting that many of the men who founded modern science, men like Newton, Faraday, Maxwell, they were all Bible believers. They all worshipped the God of heaven, perhaps with what we would consider to be erroneous views, but nevertheless, uh, they saw their study of science as the study of God's works. But modern science has detached God's works from uh, His God, from his works, I beg your pardon. It's interesting we have a, a description of science, a scientist in the Bible. In Kings, it refers to Solomon. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. So he certainly examined the the world around him as the handiwork of God. You might like to glance at a verse in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 14. Do you remember when uh, Paul at Lystra, uh, having healed a lame man, is uh, worshipped as a god? And when, when they, Paul and Barnabas realize what's happening, they run in among the people. And this is what Paul says, verse 15 of Acts 14. Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities to the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left himself not without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. What a testimony from the apostle based upon God's creation, again of the heavens and the earth and the sea, and of the things that God gives us from his good earth, those fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Well, that's considered a naive view today. But um, this argument from looking at nature and seeing it as the handiwork of God is a very powerful one. It was first uh, sort of written down by this man, William Paley. He was a a naturalist clergyman at the end of the 18th century. And he wrote a book called Natural Theology, showing how uh, the living world demonstrates the handiwork of God. And in his famous analogy, he said, Suppose I found a watch upon the ground and you pick it up and examine it and you find that it's several parts or it's many parts are framed for a purpose, which is to tell the time, of course, and. uh, The internals of the watch, it's got a case, it's got a glass and, of course, inside are very many intricate parts springs and levers and jewels in order to achieve that purpose. So Paley said, the inference is inevitable that the watch must have a maker. You wouldn't imagine that it was if you just found a stone on the ground, that that had been made with any purpose. But the watch has been made with a purpose. And so he said, everything we see in nature, every manifestation of design exists in the works of nature. And so the inference is that nature must have a designer, a maker. And it's still a powerful argument today. Um, one of the most exuberant of nature's designs is, is the tail of the male peacock. and When you examine it in detail, those eyes. and See how they are made up. This is a close up of the feather and the barbs. And if if you look at each barb has a different pattern. So these barbs are green. And then this next barb has just a trace of yellow on the outside. Uh, Sorry, in the middle of the barb. And then this one has yellow and then that sort of browny orange color and then back to yellow and then back to green. And then the barbs here start in the dark place. They, they have light blue and dark blue, Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, sorry, Cambridge and Oxford. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the orangey brown and then it, it, it's built up a series of. Individual barbs making up that pattern, which is an eye we see as an eye. You'll, have, you'll know, of course, that what you're seeing on your screen at the moment is made up from thousands of individual spots of colour, which are called pixels. And together they make up the image which you have on your screen. And you wouldn't imagine that those any of those pixel colours came by accident. How could you possibly imagine that this pattern could derive by accident? Remembering, of course, even more amazingly, that the the pattern to make that is encoded in the DNA of the peacock. And not just one of these eyes, but dozens of them. Uh, and, And. Yeah, the world is full of examples like this of Amazing design. Now, of course, the high priest of evolution is this. I call him a gentleman, Professor Dawkins. And uh, he took up Paley's challenge in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. And he said there is a watchmaker. But the watchmaker is blind. It, it's natural selection. Now, natural selection is a process which Darwin described by analogy with uh, the selection which a breeder carries out to to get the best uh, type of dog or pigeon or uh, plant. Uh, He selects amongst the offspring, the best ones and breeds those to select to get a good strain and darwin said, well nature does the same and that, that undoubtedly is true to some extent but natural selection selects it doesn't make anything new uh, what makes things new is what are described as mutations which is essentially we'll talk about those in a minute essentially mistakes and Natural selection works on mutations to produce new features. But can we really believe that things like we have just described in the peacock's tail could come about in that way? You see, he admits biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. That eye on the peacock's tail looks as though it's been designed for a purpose to presumably attract the female peahen. But of course, it hasn't really. It's just come about by accident. And natural selection has selected it because it makes the peacock more attractive. Well, um, what he's saying actually is that chance processes can produce complex design. And that is faith. There's no evidence. You cannot show this. Nobody's ever shown it in practice. He believes it because he doesn't want to believe in a designer. But it's just faith. And Mr. Dawkins despises faith. He says, faith is believing in things which cannot be proved. Precisely. So. Looking on then to what I mentioned just now, DNA, we've all heard about it. It's this amazing molecule with tens of thousands of atoms forming a a double spiral, which encodes everything that is required to make living things. uh, Like the fetus in the womb. And. DNA is. Well, it's been described as a biological computer. It it has a code and the code makes complicated uh, molecules called proteins from which everything, every living thing is made. It's, It's really got a parts list of proteins, lengths, particular lengths of the DNA provide a pattern to make different proteins. And so it's a store of information. Now, I mentioned just now that science makes the universe, um, describes the universe in material terms, in terms of things, stuff that you can see and touch and hold and analyze. But actually, living, all living things require something more than material. They require information. And information is not something you can hold in your hand. Information comes from intelligence. Uh, there's a wonderful quote by this gentleman, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. The software I'm using on this computer is Microsoft's PowerPoint. I've no idea how it works, but I just about know enough to click the right buttons. And Bill Gates said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. So he's comparing it with Microsoft's software, like PowerPoint and many other programs, and saying DNA is far more advanced than that. Now, Microsoft, obviously, like many other companies, similar companies, employ some of the most clever computer programmers in the world to produce their software and keep it up to date and improve it. But we're asked to believe that the software of DNA wrote itself, aren't we? Who wrote it? Of course, there's only one candidate. This far, far more advanced software is the product of the divine creator, the God of heaven. And that's, I think, a very powerful argument, one you can use with your friends. Who wrote the software for DNA? Um, Something else about DNA, that it's in every one of the cells of our bodies. It's in every one of the cells of a plant or a fish or a bird or an animal. It contains the complete code for making that that living thing. Uh, The DNA in our cells is approximately two metres long. We know about two metres, don't we, at the moment, keeping two metres apart. So how on Earth does it get into our cells, which you can't even see without the aid of a microscope? Well, of course, it's two meters long, but it's exceedingly thin. Much, 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 much thinner than human hair. It's only a few atoms thick so it can be folded up and rolled up. And this is how it works. Um, so the, the, the string of DNA uh, is in lengths which are then wound around these uh, balls of protein which are called nucleosomes. They're balls of protein made by the DNA by the way, chicken and egg uh, situation. Um, so it's like a string of pearls on a, on a uh, yeah, yeah, a string of pearls. I was going to say beads on a string. And those as you see here, are then rolled up. Into. um, This material, which is called chromatin, so you can see it's all tightly rolled together. I missed out these tails on the histone balls, which help control the genes. Genes can be switched on or switched off or um, dormant. They're switched on when they are needed to make a protein in one of your cells and then they become dormant or they may be switched off altogether. And the chromatin, this chromatin is then folded up into things that can actually be seen with the naked eye called, uh, sorry, with a microscope called uh, chromosomes and those chromosomes are packed into the nucleus of your cell, not just the cell itself, but inside the cell is the nucleus. What an amazing. System, that is a packet, the most amazing packaging system you can imagine. And when your cell needs something in your cell needs to make a protein, it unwraps the correct length of all of that, finds the piece of DNA, copies it to make the protein and then wraps it all up again. That's going on all the time in every one of the cells of our bodies. The complexity of what God has done is beyond description, isn't it? So let's think about our world then. We read in Psalm 148 that God makes, sorry, 147 makes the grass to grow. Here's another one, Psalm 104. He causes grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. So everything we eat ultimately starts as grass or some other form of vegetation, which is grown for us to eat or grown for the cattle or including the The fish of the sea and the birds of the air all depend on these fundamental growing things for life. So how does that work? How does grass grow? And it brings us to this amazing process called photosynthesis. That means making things from light photo light synthesis. Uh, Making And all life essentially depends on this process and it's going on all around you. If you can glance out the window and see the trees or the plants or the hedge in your garden, it's happening now. So here's a leaf. And in the surface of the leaf, if we blow it up and examine it under a microscope, the leaf has an upper and lower skin, a dermis. And then it has uh, the material. I'm not uh, a biological expert. so I'm not sure of the terms of all these things. But these, it's these little black dots here that are key. And here they are blown up. Here is one of them. And it's called a chloroplast. And within the chloroplast, which has two membranes around the outside and a third membrane inside, are these lumps of stuff, which you are sure have heard of, it's called chlorophyll. So this is chlorophyll and chlorophyll is the clever stuff which turns light into energy and food for the plant. So we blow up the (laughs) chlorophyll, we're getting smaller and smaller. And how does chlorophyll work? Because it's it's so clever that if man could replicate it, it would be, well, a certain Nobel Prize. Um, Because here's here's some chlorophyll. I, I don't know if you remember, years ago, they used to put it in toothpaste. I'm not quite sure why but uh, not for this purpose. So here's here's light falling on the chlorophyll. And here's a water molecule. Well, in fact, two of them, H2O, water. And the light somehow splits the water into oxygen which finds its way back into the atmosphere. I'm sure you know that growing things emit oxygen, which contributes to the oxygen we breathe, and it it also produces electrons and hydrogen ions. It splits hydrogen off. Now, that sounds easy, doesn't it? Light splitting water. Well, we can't do it. Uh, You can split water into oxygen and hydrogen with electricity. That's called. um, Electrolysis. But that, of course, requires the electricity. It takes quite a lot of electricity to split water. Uh, You can make hydrogen because hydrogen is desirable as the perfect fuel. Uh, Forget petrol and electric cars and all that, if you could make a car or a train or a plane which ran on hydrogen, when it burns, it just turns back to water. So there's no pollution. But hydrogen at the moment is made from natural gas, which is not an ecologically friendly approach. So how does how does the chlorophyll do it? And only uh, well, 2004, was it discovered the catalyst. Uh, A catalyst is a complicated molecule which does the job without being used up itself. So here's the catalyst. In in chlorophyll. Here are the two water molecules. And it's, it's when they attach to this molecule, the energy of the molecule splits them, as you see, uses the light energy to split them into oxygen and hydrogen. And this molecule has an atom of calcium. It has four atoms of oxygen and four atoms of manganese. I wonder how many of you have actually heard of the element manganese. It's not sort of an everyday (laughs) term, is it, that we're familiar with? Manganese is an element. It's actually a metal, very similar to iron. And your life and mine depend on it. It's in every uh, living leaf that you can see, every blade of grass. So is all that nature's invention? Or is that intelligent design? It took the You know, some of the top chemists in the world to work out what this molecule was. And yet we're asked to say that nature created it. Just by a series of happy coincidences, this molecule came into being. So there's life depending on photosynthesis. And I'm going to look now just at some examples I have talked if you've heard me on this before, you may have heard of some of these. So I apologize. But I, I just take examples from the living world that fascinate me. And the first one is this wonderful seabird, the gannet. It's a very large seabird. Um, and it, it's a, what's known as a plunge diver. It cruises over the ocean looking for shoals of fish it's a superb glider and when it sees them it dives into the sea and as you can see in that time lapse picture it folds itself up so that just before it hits the water at something like 60 or 70 miles an hour it's totally streamlined otherwise it would probably knock itself out or do some serious damage Um, So it's it's a a superb glider. It it, it has a whole series of adaptations which fit it for this particular way of feeding. So it's you may know many birds have their eyes at the side. So they've got two different views of the world. But the gannet has binocular vision. You can see how it streamlines itself. There are protective membranes which come over the eyes to protect it from the impact of the water. Its nostrils are inside its bill, so they are protected from the water. And its jaws close very tight so that no water can enter the bill as it hits the water. And then it has across its breast and the front of its wings, many air sacs which cushion the impact, and it has a reinforced bill. Now, you might say, well, any one of those might have come about by accident and been selected for by natural selection, but any one of them is useless without all the others. It's a whole design package. All those things need to be there for the gannet to prosper and feed in that way. Um, So how did all those things come together? Who was the designer? Uh, That's a bird. Let's go to insects. The, The world of insects is absolutely fascinating. And the lifestyles of many of them are so complex And we know that insects have brains the size, well, smaller than a pinhead. And they are programmed to do amazing things. There was a brother in Australia who sent me uh, the details of the possum wasp. That was the first time I came across this. He had one uh, building its pot underneath his his kitchen windowsill. As you can see, it's the female wasp who builds pots from mud, which are produced by saliva and uh, moisture and and clay and sand and so on. Now, you wouldn't imagine that a, a creature as small and humble as a wasp would be able to plan for the future. But that's what the female wasp does. When she's been impregnated, she builds this pot, and the pot is going to be a larder for her offspring. And what she does is she finds caterpillars of other insects and paralyzes them with her sting, with her venom. She doesn't kill them, but she paralyzes them so that their development is amazingly frozen. Uh, They can't develop any more. They don't die and they just stay alive. She places them in the nest cell. And then she lays her eggs in the bodies of these caterpillars. And that's her finish. She dies. So in due course, the eggs hatch and the wasp larvae feed from inside. The caterpillars, which I suppose sounds a bit gruesome. And in fact, Charles Darwin said concerning uh, parasitic wasps like this, that he could not conceive that a loving God would create a creature which uh, lived and benefited by eating another one from the inside. Now, That's a bit sort of um, soft, isn't it? Um, I don't imagine the caterpillars have large brains to realise they're being eaten from the inside. And in fact, uh, these parasitic wasps form an important control of pest species, which would otherwise multiply much too fast. Um, They're all part of the wonderful balance of nature. Ecology, as it's called today. Um, But Darwin's comment depends on his view of what a loving God would do. You you find a lot of this, a a loving God shouldn't allow suffering. uh, And this sort of argument, it's telling God what he ought to be like. Well, we know God is a God of love, but he's also God of judgment and of severity as well. So I can only um, deduce myself that the forethought in this insect is programmed into it by the creator. It's it's in the wasps software. The wasp couldn't possibly think ahead and say, well, I've got I've got five mouths to feed. I better get some food in and put it in a larder. Let's move to plants. Here's a a wonderful plant of the uh, the rainforest. I I like to tell the story that I spent two weeks trudging through the Borneo jungle to photograph this, but actually, of course, I photographed it in the tropical house at Birmingham Botanic Gardens. Um, And the pitcher plant is one of these plants which feeds on insects. You've all probably heard of the sundew and, and similar. But this the, the pitcher is a picture of a fluid which which dissolves the bodies of insects and provides the nitrogen requ- and other elements required by the plant. Uh, and in fact, it, it, uh, it wasn't until scientists actually studied them in the jungle that they realized just how clever. It is. Um, so this pitcher is a, is a specially adapted leaf hanging from a leaf stalk, and it's got a, a lid up here, and the lid produces nectar, which attracts its prey, which is primarily ants. Um, so the ants are attracted, they crawl onto the lid, and eventually onto the pitcher itself. Now, when the pitcher is dry. It's perfectly safe for the ants to walk on it. It's only when it rains and this this was what was discovered by seeing it in the rainforest environment that when it rains, that uh, surface becomes lethally slippery. So the ants get used to crawling around on it, but when it rains, they lose their grip and fall into the pitcher. And the walls of the pitcher have a special waxy material so that there is no possibility of the ants climbing back out again. And so they drown in um, in the fluid and are digested by the plant. Perhaps um, Mr. Darwin didn't think oh, that's not a very nice way for a ant to die. Sorry, I'm being um, cynical. Um, so it, it's the intermittent action of the rain on the plant that provides the element of surprise. So once again, it's a design package, uh, intricate in its uh, outworking. Quite amazing to contemplate. Now, one of my favourite uh, creatures uh, is is the cuttlefish, uh, which again I I read about in New Scientist magazine. Uh, and the article I read about was how the cuttlefish evolved its skin. You can see the skin here uh, with this amazing pattern on it. What what you can't see is that that pattern is not fixed. It's a fluid pattern that moves and the cuttlefish can change it in an instant. Those lines can move and flow and uh, jiggle about and take many different colors and even different shapes and forms. Um, the cuttlefish is not actually a fish, it's a mollusk. Most mollusks have um, their bones on the outside, they're like snails and creatures like that, um, squid, also jellyfish, they're, they're all sort of related creatures. You may have seen the internal bone of the cuttlefish pick one up on the beach. Um, bird keepers put them in the cages for um, the birds to nibble to get their calcium. Um, The the article claimed that an unfortunate mutation had turned the cuttlefish inside out so it no longer had the protection of a shell. And so it had evolved this amazing skin uh, coloration. Uh, in order to um, camouflage itself. It didn't say how the, the million or few years that it took to evolve that skin um, uh, s- uh, system, uh, what it did for protection in the interim to be to avoid being ex- made extinct by predators. What, what, one of the things it can do is to blend into the background for camouflage. And it can also avoid predators, confuse its prey and use it for display, for communication. Now, here's a picture of a cuttlefish in camouflage. You can just about make out the shape. You can see how it's totally changed its color I think this is a um, coral reef. This is broken bits of coral. Not only does it color itself like the coral, but the skin texture has also changed. It's got lumps and bumps as though it is a piece of coral. How on earth does it do that? The scientists believe that cuttlefish are blind. So how do they make their skin match? almost instantly so now you see it now you don't uh absolutely wonderful if you're interested go uh, google or sorry go onto youtube and search for cuttlefish and there's a lovely videos of them actually doing their stuff and changing color marvelous creatures so we've seen a bird we've seen a plant, we've seen an insect, and we've seen a marine creature. But of course, the supreme example of creation is, is us. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And I'm sure we know the words from Psalm 139. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I am made. I didn't just happen. Um, Just as an aside, I believe that Psalm is really talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his reforming in the resurrection, but um, it certainly still applies to us. And Paul, the words we've already mentioned in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill in Athens, that God gives to all life and breath and all things and has made from one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. A fact which men are very still very reluctant to believe and racism and color prejudice, as we know is still alive and flourishing in our world. I just thought I would pick out one organ in the body, which is an amazing organ. Uh, And it's actually the largest organ in the body. Uh, To a live audience, not implying that you're not alive. um, but When I can speak to the audience, I ask them to tell me what organ they think it is. And most people say the skin. Well, that's the largest in area, but it's not internal. Uh, The largest internal organ is the liver. And most of us are never aware of our livers. I don't think we even think about them unless we're ill. Um, You might not even know where it is. Well, there it is just under the right hand side of your diaphragm at the bottom of your chest um and when we look at the construction of the liver it's an extraordinary thing i can only very quickly summarize it with my imperfect knowledge this is the aorta bringing fresh oxygenated blood from the heart and it's split off into the liver so that the liver gets a fresh supply of oxygen you can follow I think the red uh, blood vessels carrying it to all parts of the liver, to the liver cells which are called hepatocytes from the Greek word for the liver. Um, another supply of blood is in this light blue one which brings blood with nutrients from the intestines. So when you've eaten a meal and it's partial it's di- being digested, those chemicals proteins and minerals and vitamins in the food are sent into the the liver by the hepatic uh, vein sorry artery and then so you get oxygen and nutrients sent to all the cells of the liver which then processes them and stores what what are needed to be stored. It's been estimated that the liver has around 500 different functions. Um, It produces proteins, which it then feeds back into the bloodstream via the hepatic vein. So this is the return flow going back into the circulation, carrying um, proteins, hormones, minerals, that are needed by the cells of the rest of the body. Things that are, need to be stored are stored in the liver. So, for instance, um, when you eat a meal and you get energy, glucose is converted into glucose. Glucose is stored in the liver as something called glycogen which can return glucose to the bloodstream when it's required. You, you don't want all the energy at once and then it's gone till you have another meal. So the, the liver stores it and recirculates it as required. So an amazing array of. of uh, processes which it carries out, and it's also the uh, body's um, Toxin remover. You know, you can get these do- diets which are supposed to detoxify your body, but the liver actually does it for you. But be warned, it doesn't do very well with alcohol, um, as the well-known disease it damages the, the liver. Excess alcohol and you get cirrhosis. Um, so fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, we've talked in the the liver processes these things via the blood. And of course, we know that scripture says that the life is in the blood. It is that essential fluid which links all the different parts of the body, circulates and carries all those uh, materials around that the liver processes. And just briefly talk about how it does it, because this this to me is absolutely amazing. So in your uh, bloodstream, there are millions of these red blood cells. And the function of the red blood cells is to collect oxygen from the lungs and transfer it to the cells of the body that need it. And as I dare say, you know, the haemoglobin molecule, which is illustrated here, uses iron. That's why we need iron in our diet, um, because it's going to use iron to collect the oxygen. Iron likes oxygen. We've almost forgotten, actually, but our motor cars nowadays don't go rusty. But when I started driving a car, they went rusty at the touch of the drop of a hat, I should say. The whole ownership of a car was a battle to stop them going rusty. Iron likes oxygen. So, how can iron collect oxygen from the lungs and then release it to the cells when it gets to them? Why doesn't it just hang on to the oxygen like rust? Does on on iron, and the answer is that the the iron groups that you see this says heme group. It's a, a little molecule surrounding an iron atom. So the little red balls there, there are four of them, are, are iron atoms, and each atom is in held inside this spiral. Uh, chain of protein called a polypeptide. So there are two alpha chains and two beta chains. And so you have four iron atoms and each iron atom can hang on to one oxygen molecule. But the, the way that it's constructed, the oxygen molecule can get close to the iron, but it can't form a bond with it which would be unbreakable. So isn't that clever? The oxygen molecule heads for the iron. It can't quite get there, but it's held there until it gets to a cell which is lacking oxygen. And and then it releases it. And its place is taken by carbon dioxide molecule, which is going to be taken back to the lungs for you to breathe out, to expel. A Quite un. I mean, that's a very crude description of a very marvellous process. Well, the most amazing organ of all, of course, is our brain. If you see a picture of a brain, it's difficult to believe that this uh, few pounds of squidgy gray material actually contain every thought you've ever had every emotion every piece of consciousness awareness of the world you're in it enables you to think to speak to listen to see to hear and do all the things that we do and it's all here in this in our heads it took a long time for humans to realize that That was where it all came from. Um, And within all those folds of the brain, there are a hundred billion nerve cells, they're called neurons. They are the things which do the work. We've no idea how, how is it that a collection of little cells which are altered in some way Together they can make a memory of what you did yesterday or can uh, enable you to see what's on your screen and interpret it and read words and understand them and so on. Uh, um, And those those hundred billion neurons aren't just sitting there. They're interconnected with other neurons in connections and the number of connections runs into trillions. That's millions of millions. <laughs> um, so when you make a memory, uh, a certain number of neurons f- send out little links and connect into other neurons and form a, a network. And uh, if you refresh it, you keep making that memory, then you remember it permanently. But if it's only there for a little while, then the connections will break and you forget. Uh, Of course, at 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 the age of some of us, the forgettery is overtaking the memory. Um, When you eat your tea, 20% of the energy that you gain from your tea will be devoted to the work of the brain. So you can have an extra bit if you really fancy it. Um, Which is an extraordinary percentage, isn't it? One fifth of the energy that you take in goes to servicing the cells of the brain. And it is, of course, the seat of that mysterious property called consciousness, which scientists argue uh, endlessly over. Where does consciousness come from? How is it that we can make memories? How is it that we can understand? How is it that we can be aware that there is a God? And we we know where the consciousness comes from. This is the property that God has given to us when he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. This is spirit, if you like, the spirit of man, which is able to respond to the spirit of God. And so, although the world doesn't recognize it, the most important nutrient of the brain is the word of God. The most important nutrient, the most important thing we can feed our brains with. Wonderful life. Wherever we look, everything that God has made is wonderful. And Job captured that when he said, ask the beast, ask the animals, ask the birds of the air, ask the insects, speak to the earth, and it will teach you that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So I hope you've found that interesting, I hope you found it inspiring as, as I do, uh, to see and to think about how wonderful the things of God are. But it's not quite the end, is it? Because we've been talking about this life, and as Brother Jeff referred to in his introduction, there is a life to come, the life of the new creation. Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. We are subject still to mortality. Our cells are dying all the time. But death has no more dominion over him. And that is the wonderful hope that is set before us. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, And I will raise him up at the last day. If this life is wonderful, how wonderful will the life to come be? And so we long and pray for that day when our Lord will come. He who has promised and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Amen. Our faith is, of course, centred in our belief in the person and the existence of almighty God as the creator of heaven and earth. The one who has, as Jeff has just reminded us, reveals himself in the word of God and in his son, Jesus Christ, but also in the wonderful creation that he has made. He is a God of, of love and power but, of course, of purpose. Everything we see in the universe and in this world has a purpose. And it's that that uh, ungodly evolution and atheism denies. And so we're going to look at some of the ways in which God is revealed in the things that he has made. I don't intend to make this a polemic attacking evolution and all the rest of it. I just want us to marvel at the things that we find before us. And in many ways in our modern world, so much more of God's creation has been revealed to us. And uh, we can watch TV programs or on the, on the internet, uh, amazing things that were unknown to all previous generations. So Psalm 19 that we just read, tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork and it sets it alongside the laws of God. As you you will know from verse seven onwards, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So here is God's glory in the created universe and his glory in the laws which are intended to, to make men glorify God by keeping them. Uh, and so the psalmist goes on to say that there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth. Wherever you are on the world, you can see the heavens above declaring God's glory. And interestingly, Apostle Paul in Romans 10 takes those very words and relates them to the preaching of the gospel uh, so that the gospel itself declares the glory of God coming as it does from heaven. So the Bible begins, of course, with a simple and uncomplicated description of God's creation in Genesis chapter one not not a description couched in the terms of modern science, but one which has been accessible to all faithful men and women of all ages and and still tells us of God's work. and in, ter- in terms of the heavens in Genesis 1 fourteen, God said, "Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. And so the times and the seasons roll around and tonight we have to put the clocks back. um, Not something which I'm very keen on, but there we are. (laughs) Um, And so God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And in all of this, the glory of God is declared. Now, of course, um, many people now dismissed Genesis description of God's creation and relegated it to the realm of myth Uh, and even Many who profess a belief in the Bible say, well, we can just take it as allegory. And yet creation is a theme which runs throughout the Bible. It's not just uh, Genesis chapter one. And so we have, well, (coughs) there are something like at least 70 direct references to God making the heavens and the earth. This one, of course, from David. And you notice the terms in which he refers to it. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. The implication is if God can do that, he can do anything in my life. And that's an exhortational point for all of us to start with. Our God is greater than any problem, any trial, any enemy that we might face in this life. Similarly, those words, who spoke those? O Lord, thou hast made heaven and earth. Those are the words of Hezekiah in Jerusalem with a huge army outside intent on its destruction. And uh, of course, through Hezekiah's faith in the creator of heaven and earth, the city was delivered from the Assyrian. And uh, the apostle Paul. Uh, Speaking to the educated and mighty of his day in Athens, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And so he begins his preaching of the gospel with God, the creator. So, you know, you can't just chop off Genesis 1 and say, well, we've, we've got rid of creation. It's right through the word of God. And uh, everything about the creation is designed to bring honour and glory to God. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now we must ask the question, when did God do all this? And... um, there are, of course, divergent views, there are brethren, and I respect their views, who believe that the entire creation, the entire universe came into existence a mere 6,000 years ago. Um, let me quote the words of Brother Thomas in Alpis Israel. And he points out that the creation record is, is given to someone who is an inhabitant on the earth looking up, as as we just thought in in, uh, Psalm 19. Looking up, we see the heavens that show the glory of God. Let the reader peruse the history of the creation as a revelation to himself as an inhabitant of the earth. To an observer on earth, this was there. the the heavenly bodies, order of appearance, that is, on the fourth day. And in relation to him, a primary creation, though absolutely pre-existent for millions of ages before the Adamic era. So, uh, Brother Thomas spoke of the creation as having taken place millions of years, millions of ages ago but then the Adamic creation taking place as the Bible places it a few thousand years ago. Just interesting that that idea of the scriptures being written from the point of view of an observer on the earth, in the words of Ecclesiastes, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, the wise man says, The sun also ariseth. And the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. So that's what we see as inhabitants of the earth. We see the sun rise, we see it go down and it hastens to come back and rise again the next day. We know that that's not a scientific description, that uh, in fact, the sun rises and sets because the earth is rotating on its axis. I think that's uh, helpful to realize. Now, the prophets of Israel have many powerful passages um, extolling God for his work in creation. Just look with me at Isaiah and chapter 45. Isaiah 45, And verse five, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I have girded thee, though thou hast not known me. This is a prophecy, of course, to Cyrus. Um, Verse seven, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then in verse 45, God says, Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens. Sorry, chapter 45, verse 18. God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. If we just examine that verse, there are four different Hebrew words there used for God's work in creation. The first is the word bara. Thus saith the Lord that created bara the heavens. God himself that formed Yatsar, the earth, and made it Asar. He hath established it. It's the word Kun. And then two of the words are repeated. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Now, th- there are some common words there that are used throughout scripture for making things. So when uh, Israel made the tabernacle, um, words like Asar uh, are used. But the word bara is only used of God himself. I think that's significant. Man can form and make and even establish. But God creates. He alone. This is his power and his energy that has created all things. There's a sort of sequence there, isn't there? He created the materials, the universe itself. He formed them in order to make a a wonderful planet for man to live on. He made it. He furnished it and he established it in its orbit around the sun and so on. So I I think that's helpful in, in appreciating that God is unique as the creator. Now, one of the modern discoveries about the universe that man has made is that it is expanding. Um, We won't go into the science of this, but the light from distant galaxies coming to the Earth is shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. It's referred to as the red shift, which indicates that they are moving away from us, that the universe itself is expanding. And there are at least a dozen passages in scripture where that phrase is used, that God stretches out the heavens. Now, this may be just poetic language, but it seems to me to indicate that under inspiration, the prophets knew uh, what God was at. He revealed it to them. He, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And Jeremiah, he has made the earth by his power established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion or his judgment. So God's energy has been expended in the production of the amazing universe that we see when we look up. Now, the current uh, theory of science is, as I'm sure you know, the Big Bang. Uh, And many brethren and sisters are disturbed by the Big Bang. I've I've heard brethren say explosions only destroy things. They don't create things. Well, that's partly because it's a very unfortunate description. The Big Bang is not an explosion. Uh, and, and I'm not saying it's right. Let me just tell you what the current th- theory is. And that is that, that the entire universe, as we see it, was once contained in a in a, in a microscopic uh, volume called a singularity. Um, if you imagine all the immense energy of the universe as we see it it was once all in one place that's the implication of the universe expanding that once upon a time it started now it's very interesting because prior to the discovery of the expansion of the universe science b- believed that the universe had no beginning and the the expansion of the universe universe forced them to accept that it has a beginning. They're very unhappy about it, and and all sorts of uh, efforts are being made to think, well, how did it get to the beginning? What was before the beginning? We know from Scripture that the beginning came with God. And and so try as uh, they might, they have to accept that the universe had a beginning. And it was made from an immense outpouring of energy. And all that energy is still there. It's still seen in the universe around us. Um, And one of course, the the discoveries of well, it was Albert Einstein who realized that matter, the, the, the material stuff that the universe is made of and the energy which drives it are interchangeable with the famous equation E equals mc squared. Uh, And that describes energy being equivalent to mass, the amount of stuff, multiplied by the speed of light squared. That's an enormous number. And it tells us that a small amount of matter contains a vast amount of energy and uh, that's unfortunately demonstrated in uh, a nuclear explosion and a, a very small a few grams of matter are converted into that vast amount of energy but it also explains how the sun works in the sun i'll mention this again that uh, Matter is converted into energy and provides all the energy that our lives depend upon. Now, probably forty or fifty years before Albert Einstein discovered that equivalent, that uh, equation, our brethren of the nineteenth century produced the statement of faith which says. God has, out of his own underived energy, created heaven and earth and all that in them is. I find that absolutely amazing that before any of this scientific explanation, brethren realized that the, the whole universe, the heavens and the earth, are, are made of the energy of God. Another thing about the universe, and this, is, uh, this has been realized and, and promoted by scientists who do not believe in God, is that the universe is fine-tuned for life. What does that mean? Many of the features of the universe are at just the exquisitely right level for life to flourish, as we know it on this Earth. So an obvious example, gravity, is just the right strength for people like you and me to walk around and in our younger days even jump. <laughs> um, if we lived on the moon, a body the size of the moon, as you know, you would go floating about and it would be very difficult difficult to control your motion. If you lived on a planet that was a lot bigger, then uh, you would just have to crawl, there would be no way of standing up. Now, I mentioned mass being converted to energy. In our sun, which is essentially a colossal ball of hydrogen gas, every second 600 million tonnes of hydrogen are converted into helium. But the helium they're converted into weighs four million tons less than the hydrogen it was made from. And that four million tons is is turned into energy, the energy which streams out into the solar system and keeps us warm and at just the right temperature and many physical constants Have just the right values for life. If that conversion of mass to energy was much greater, then all the hydrogen would have disappeared long ago. If it was any less, then stars like the Sun would not produce any heat at all. Here's a quote from a a non-believing scientist who's written books on this, the laws which enabled the universe to come into being spontaneously. There you are, he believes that the the universe created itself, but its laws seem themselves to be the product of exceedingly ingenious design. The laws of the universe are ingenious. Where did the ingenuity come from? He can't bring himself to say, well, it must be from God. So, just, just uh, reverting to the idea of the age of the universe, um, this is what Moses says in Psalm ninety: "Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God." And we know God, therefore, is is without beginning and without end. But just think that comparison that Moses makes would mean really very little if, he, if he's only saying, well, God is older than the mountains that were formed a mere 6,000 years ago. But Moses is saying, in effect, the mountains and the earth are ancient, but God is even more ancient. He's from everlasting. And it's interesting that uh, Jacob uses that word "everlasting" of the hills, the mountains, in his blessings on the tribes when he blesses Joseph, and he says thou exceed above the blessings of the that come upon the everlasting hills. I haven't quite got the quotation right. Now, our planet, the Earth, this wonderful planet that God has given man is, of course, part of a system rotating around the sun. We call it the solar system. It's really two systems. The the inner part, which um, let me just get the pointer, you can see here, this, this is the inner solar system bounded by the orbit of Mars. And here it is, these are the inner planets, which are rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, the Earth and Mars. And then beyond them at much greater distances are the gas giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. And and then this is little Pluto, which used to be a planet, now a dwarf planet, it's been reduced. this picture actually reveals that uh, the orbits of the planets are not circles actually, but ellipses. You can see that clearly with uh, Pluto. They're oval in shape. Um, and until the space age came about sixty, seventy years ago, All that we knew of those heavenly bodies was what could be seen from Earth through a telescope. And now, of course, uh, space probes have visited all of the planets of the solar system. And we have stunning pictures of what they're like. Um, So this is one of the pictures taken on the surface of Mars. I mean, it's not exactly inviting, is it? And there are people who seem desperate to go and live on Mars um, with its very low temperature and very thin atmosphere. And it just looks like one of the desert regions of Earth. But there we are. That's the surface of Mars. And then there's a close up picture of the giant planet Jupiter with its great red spot, which is a, a huge storm which has been raging for well over 200 years and this is one of its moons uh, rotating orbiting round jupiter just creating a, a black mark against the planet here's another of the planets neptune beautiful blue color that's the farthest of the planets and of course the most glorious of them all in appearance is the planet Saturn with its icy rings, which uh, you can see with a fairly small telescope. But, you know, we are a privileged generation to see the sheer glory of these things close up through the through the um, advent of the space age. And interestingly, the two Voyager satellites, which took these pictures have now left the solar system and gone out into, into, into uh, stellar space, into the cosmos beyond. Which brings us to the fact that our solar system is just one of thousands, millions probably, which occupy our galaxy which we refer to as the Milky Way, because that's how it looks from Earth, looking up at the sky. Not that we sadly see it very often because of light pollution caused by our street lights and other lighting. But if you can get right away, um, there are a few designated designated areas in this country which are called uh, um, for low light pollution you can see the glory of the milky way and the milky way is actually one of well (laughs) the numbers blow our minds don't they something like 200 billion other galaxies now this this picture up here um was taken by the Hubble Space Telescope and they deliberately pointed it at a bit of the sky that was dark. There wasn't much, not many stars there. And they kept it pointed for, I think, a week or two so that it could gather all the tiny amount of light coming. And that's what resulted. It's called the deep field photograph. And these are all not stars, but galaxies at immense distances from earth and that's how that they come to the conclusion there are at least 200 billion other galaxies the milky way contains something like 200 billion stars uh, and that's a computer generated picture of if you could get outside our galaxy that's what it would look like it's called a spiral galaxy. It's believed that at the centre is a supermassive black hole, and all these stars are spiralling round it. And it has two, three, or four spiral arms, a bit like a Catherine wheel. So where are we? Oh, uh, yeah. The, the the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years from side to side. That means a star over here, it's light reaches a star over here after 100,000 years, Um, which gives you you just a taste of the immensity. Uh, So when you see a star the other side, you're seeing it actually as it was 100,000 light years ago. 100,000 years ago, because that's how long it takes, even at the immense speed that light travels, which is 186,000 miles every second. So that's where our solar system is, approximately two thirds of the way out from the center of the galaxy. And there's very good reason for that, the, the, the amounts of radiation in the inner solar galaxy would be far too high to allow life on Earth. And just as, as uh, an example, the Pleiades star cluster, which you may know as the Seven Sisters, which is 400 light years away from Earth, is, is that little dot near our solar system. One is just left in sheer awe, probably 150 years ago, it was thought that the Milky Way galaxy was all there was. That was the universe. And then instruments like the Hubble Space Telescope show that we're just one of 200 billion. Our God has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger in his power and his wisdom that he controls all of this. All of this is known to him. Um, We have that famous understatement in the creation record in Genesis 1, that he made the stars also. And uh, God made the stars a a symbol of the uh, promises that he made to Abraham. Look now toward heaven and count the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your seed be. And uh, in Psalm 147, he counts the numbers of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite, literally without number. He, He cannot be numbered. So the scripture leads us to understand that God knows all these things. Man is just beginning to discover them. God has known them all along and is in control. It's, it seems ironical that at a time when God has allowed man to, to learn all these things, God, man turns his back on God and says, well, I don't believe he exists at all. And it's all happened by itself. I showed you um, a a computer generated picture of what the Milky Way might look like here. This is the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way. It's called the Andromeda Galaxy. And this is the only other galaxy which you can actually see with the naked eye. If you know where to look, Uh, it's in the constellation of Andromeda. So just that's the clue. But it's um, a similar size, perhaps a, a bit bigger than our galaxy. And it's two and a half million light years away. Uh, so that's that's our galactic twin. But you have to say it's sheer beauty, isn't it? I, it well, it seems to me amazingly beautiful. Uh, and again, that's a picture taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. There a, a, a new space telescope, the James Webb, is due to be launched in a few years' time, which is going to be a lot even more powerful than the Hubble and will reveal many more amazing things to us. Here's something which is very interesting to me anyway, if not to you. Uh, this is something called the Crab Nebula. This is within our galaxy, the Milky Way. And it was called the crab when it was first seen by telescope because of its sort of shape and appearance. Um, and over the last 100 or so years, it's been realised that it's growing. And it actually, therefore, <laughs> was once again, not, not a big bang, but it was a literal explosion. And it's now realised that it was, it's the remnant of a supernova That is a huge star which has run out of its hydrogen fuel and collapsed and exploded. And we actually know that it was seen in 1054 by Chinese astronomers. Um, And what's left in the centre is a tiny star called a pulsar, which is spinning at very high speed. That that thing actually happened if you have because it's six and a half thousand light years away, you have to say it happened seven thousand five hundred and fifty four years B.C. Um, Because that's how long the light took to reach the Chinese astronomers who saw it as a, a star which suddenly grew bright and for a couple of years could be seen in the sky and then disappeared. But uh, there we are. Well, science has discovered a great deal about the the universe, but actually there is far more to discover. God hasn't revealed all his secrets by any means. Uh, And the first thing is that these galaxies which are spinning It's realized they are spinning too fast for the stars on the outer edges to be held. There isn't enough matter in the galaxy to hold onto them by gravity. They should be spinning off into space. So there must be material in here that cannot be seen. So they had to call it dark matter, but nobody knows what it is and nobody's been able... For 50 years, they've been looking for it and I'm unable to find it. The second thing is that over the last 20 or 30 years, it's been realized that the expansion of the universe is actually speeding up. It ought to be slowing down under the pull of gravity, but it's speeding up. And so they have to invent something else called dark energy, which is pushing the galaxies apart. So. Man thinks he's very clever, but I like to think that God uh, sits in his heaven and uh, as Psalm 2 says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Ninety percent of, 96 percent of the universe is missing. Now, is there anyone else out there? For the last fifty odd years, men have been searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. They've been looking for messages from space. Well, we don't know what purpose God has with the rest of His universe. Maybe not. Maybe this life on this planet is all there is. Maybe He has other things he hasn't revealed to us. But man chooses to ignore the message from space, which is freely available to us all, and that's God's word. This is from God, not from some alien intelligence. And last uh, in part one, I just want to sort of set the stage for part two when we shall think about life on Earth and this wonderful planet that God has made for us and everything about it. We we already hinted that the universe itself is designed for life. And our planet in particular is its place. It's where we are in what they refer to as the Goldilocks zone. You remember Goldilocks at the porridge, which was not too hot and not too cold. And the Earth is in the zone where uh, water, which is essential for life, of course, is a liquid uh, most of the time. Its size and gravity, the, the wonderful atmosphere. When you see these pictures taken from space, you realize how thin that atmosphere is it's just that faint blue circle on the edge and that's what we breathe that's what protects us actually from harmful radiation from the sun and of course our planet is covered two-thirds of its surface with water which gives us our seasons it acts as um, a, a blanket it It smooths out the temperature variations over the earth and gives us rain and so on. It creates the ozone layer, which protects us from ultraviolet radiation. It has a magnetic field, which diverts away the uh, radiation coming from the sun and protects us. It gives us dry land and soil that wonderful 18 inches deep of soil across the globe which uh, all our food comes from except where man's bad management has allowed it to blow away so everything about our planet is designed for life and we'll think about life uh, in the second part Meanwhile, with Nehemiah, let's praise our God. Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. And the host of heaven worshippeth thee, because everything in it, obeys the laws that God has established from the beginning and he asks us likewise to obey his laws as well.